Hello and welcome to an Hour from Tower podcast, a podcast that brings you the people and personalities from the College of St. Scholastica. Today I'm here with our head cross-country coach, Chad Samala. I said that right, yeah. Right, I'm right. practicing and I, and I got it right. So, right, yeah, good to have you here, Chad. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. And I'm really looking forward to this today. Your, your background to me as a former athlete is just absolutely amazing. I mean, and the experiences that you've had and I'm kind of like talking to a superstar because with <laughs> an NBC commentator and a whole bunch of things we'll get to, yeah, but yeah. yeah. But as I'm we, a superstar, but yeah, well, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> you, you, yeah, I think I, you know, I, I'll deem you a superstar okay. anyway. So, um, but I, I want to just start in as I do always with, with the podcast, just, you know, tell me you've been here actually, you know, for 17 years, 17 yeah. years. So kind of what, but talk to talk to me about your journey here because you went to college in Vermont and, yeah. you know, yeah. Closer, but how'd you end up here? So I was, um, at the time, I had just recently left a job at the organizing committee for the Salt Lake Olympic Games in 2002. So that was 2000, so it was four years after that. Came back to Duluth, um, was looking for what I was going to do next. I considered maybe taking a job at the Athens Olympics um, as an organ- sport organizer, but I'd heard some, it was pretty pretty crazy, pretty rough, like it, not very well organized. And as it turns out, all the people I knew that went there got fired six months later, so I'm oh. glad I didn't chase that. <laughs> but I came home to Duluth, kind of re- Lived in my parents' basement for a couple of weeks. Uh, got my real estate license and started selling real estate. And at the same time, I was kind of looking for coaching coaching opportunities because I wasn't coaching in Salt Lake, but I'd been the national team assistant coach before Salt Lake for the sport of biathlon, the sport that I competed in. And I love coaching. I knew I wanted to coach, so I started. I looked for a coaching job, and as luck would have it, Marshall was Marshall School was looking for a cross country running coach. I was an all state runner as a, as a high schooler, but I hadn't been really coaching running. Um, I had always loved running as my kind of like we train train running for a lot of what we do for speed mm-hmm. training and biathlon training. So that was an opportunity. I was coaching running at Marshall at the time, about, I was about four years into that, uh, selling real estate, which I was good at, but didn't love. It was not, I mean, it, it was just, it's a really tough profession. People think that, I think a lot of people think real estate's, real estate is an easy job to make a lot of money. It's quite the opposite. I think you got to work really hard, Yeah. Um, but you can do it. But I was, I was having enough of that. And then and I was going around the upper Midwest in the wintertime, taking little gigs with my PA system, just announcing like national level ski races when they dropped in the United States or dropped in the Midwest. And they would just I'd drive in, they'd pay me a few hundred bucks for, per day. And I'd set up my speakers and I just kind of honed my craft there. Like I was doing, you know, doing the sound. I was basically producing. I was making music, setting the tone for the day and announcing the races. And then um, Bo Ekmark, who was had been to a couple of my open houses. He was the he was running the wellness center for the college and and he saw me at a at an open house and said, you know, they're they're hiring. No, no, he called me. I but I, I knew him from from real estate and he called me and said, you know, they're hiring for a ski coach at St. Scholastica. And I'm like, yeah, they're gonna do it wrong. I'm interested. Because <laughs> <laughs> every everybody at that point that was trying to add skiing would, you know, they'd underfund it. They wouldn't weren't serious about it. They just kind of like what's the next thing we can offer people that will draw people in? And and so I just, I wasn't interested. So, so then Tony Barrett, who was the um, interim AD at the time, he called me. Mm-hmm. He and Brian, Brian uh, Dalton were, you know, they were trying to grow the opportunities here at the school and, and you know, football came not, not long after women's hockey came not long after, but they said, you know, we've done that. We've done that. I basically, they asked me why I hadn't, hadn't applied. And I said, well, I'm not interested. And I said, well, why not? I was like, cause I don't think you'll do it. Right. <laughs> I was, I was fl- flat out honest. Yeah. And they came back to me and, and they pitched me on it. And they said, and I said, well, that sounds pretty cool. I'll, I'll apply. So I applied and I wrote out kind of a manifesto of if you're going to start an NCAA ski team, here's what you need to do. Uh-huh. And, and I got the job. Yeah. And uh, so I took that job in 2006, uh, left real estate, took a huge pay cut. <laughs> uh-huh. 
Um, but it was fine. Like money has never been really a, a motivating factor for me to do anything that I do. I mean, you need money to live, but yeah. it's like, you know, even, t- you know, I was a single guy at the time. I wasn't married and, you know, taking that pay cut didn't really matter. It was yeah. like, I just, I stopped the real estate business, just hung up my license and came to work here and started, yeah. started building a ski team and didn't know, I mean, I had some ideas and some visions, but I didn't really know what it was going to take, but, uh, took a lot it was yeah. a heavy lift but it yeah. was really fun so you went from ski then because you coached ski for a number of years and now you're yeah. coaching cross country talk to me about that change yeah so those 10 years as a ski coach were probably some of the best years of my life but they're also really difficult like especially being married and having young kids just the the nomadic lifestyle of skiing and most people don't realize what goes into modern cross country ski racing and it's really immense and there aren't a lot of schools that have more than one head coach or, or two two full time head co- or two full time coaches. And at the time, I just had one head full time coach, which was me. And our team grew pretty quickly and got competitive pretty quickly. And by ten years in, I just I was exhausted. Um, couple uh, several things were coming coming together at that time. And um, I had heard that you know I'd been doing kind of like trying to do some work for NBC Sports or their affiliates um, when they would do skiing on TV. It wasn't all the time. Like they'd maybe do the Tour de Ski, which is a 12-day event, yeah. or they would do you know a couple of World Cups, or they'd do biathlon World Championships. And I was getting that work. But oftentimes, I had to turn those jobs down, and they were lucrative. Like they paid really well mm-hmm. for just 10 days of work. Mm-hmm. But I would have to turn them down because they fell during the U.S. National Championships or something like that. And I had athletes who needed to do really well that were trying to make a team or make NCAA. So I had to turn down like really lucrative work and, I, and work that I liked. And and every time you turn down an opportunity like that, it, you know the network is going to look for other people. Yeah. So I, I was kind of losing my my foothold there. Yeah. Um, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2016, um, and that and that was a big that was one of the factors also to to decide. And, and I just needed a change. And NBC, I'd heard been hearing rumors as they'd been ramping up their content. They bought the rights outright for all the World Cups in biathlon and cross-country skiing, and I knew that they were planning at launching an Olympic network. I didn't know when, but at the time, I was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to take that job when I'm a ski coach. Yeah. I'm completely exhausted. Yeah. Then I had a really good friend who reached out to me, Davis, oh, not a really good friend. I never met him. He was a hero of mine as a kid growing up, a pro bike racer from the 7-Eleven team, Davis Finney. He's a legend in, in U.S. cycling, and, and we had connected because his daughter skied at Middlebury, my alma mater. Mm-hmm. And he had heard that I, and we met at the NCAA championships in 2016 in skiing. He was there and he had had Parkinson's at that point, almost 20 years. And he just gave me some words of advice. He said, you've got to simplify your life. I was right where you were mm-hmm. trying to do too many things. Mm-hmm. What's the most stressful thing in your life? And you got to try to change that. And the most stressful thing in my life was coaching skiing. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about it. And mm-hmm. it's not a, a, a neck on skiing. Mm-hmm. I love it, but it, it is so all consuming in that season. Man, my right leg starts to shake just thinking. About it. <laughs> yeah. So, so I had some things to weigh. You know, I probably had to change my life a little bit. Yeah. This network was coming up, and I needed a change. I either needed to quit coaching or get out of coaching skiing. And I didn't want to quit coaching because even to this day, like I don't see myself as a sportscaster. I think I'm probably more broadly known outside of Saint Scholastica as the guy who calls skiing and biathlon in in this country, mm-hmm. which are both not terribly big sports, mm-hmm. but. Um, but, you know, I always see myself as a coach first and foremost, and I love being a coach. And it was really hard to consider quitting, but I almost quit coaching. Like I, so I talked to, at the time, Don Olson was the AD, and I just said to him, I said, well, um, Steve Finkston uh, simultaneously was stepping down as a head cross-country running coach. And I'd already been his assistant coach several years mm-hmm. ago before that. And I always kind of wanted, I coached runners. I was coaching pro marathoner on the side in, in yeah. the early 20, yeah. 2010s. 
in late 2000s. So like, I'd always been kind of compelled with like taking some of my methodology ideas that I used to train skiers and tweaking them to coach a running team and use, use a little lab, use a lot of the same principles. So I pitched it to him. I said, you know, I would, I would love to the opportunity to slide over into the running program, take the head coach running program in 2016. And, and then let's try to find a really good replacement for me as a ski coach. And, uh, and he was for it. So he, you know, he just, we decided to try that. And that's why, why I'm here. I mean, yeah. that's why I went into running. It was either that or I, I probably was going to quit. Yeah. And, and I'm really, I'm really proud of the strides we've made as a running program competitively. Yeah. Steve Finkson always had such a strong team um, feel to his teams here. And I, I probably was weaker at that, like taking that job. That was not my strength. My strength was high performance, focusing on performance, but you know, I don't think Saints Glass is ever going to truly just be that as a sports program. And, it, and it, it's going to be, you know, the family thing is a really big thing to, mm -hmm. to try to build. And I took a lot of his cues to try to do that since I've taken this job, to try to be a little a little softer on talking about performance, a little more talking about the things that really matter to people. And, mm -hmm. and it's been a really good growth opportunity for me as a coach to be the coach here as well. Yeah, and I would say the the time, and again, my short time here at Sklaska, but the time that I've been around your teams, that family feel is really strong. So yeah. I think yeah. you've accomplished that Thanks. really well. Yeah, Thanks. and they're great, great, great uh, students and great people yeah. too, which is yeah. a lot of fun. I, you know, I'm I'm really interested in something you had talked about this all consuming aspect of ski, right? That was right. a really tough thing with your right. diagnosis and things. Um, I, Talk to me about maybe because I is that a, a trend with all coaches? Like I see our coaches here. I think they are all. I mean, they all like their program is like their identity. Right. There right. is it is it was it different for skiing because you you competed at such a high yeah. level and demanded that, or is that kind of common amongst all coaches? Well, I think I mean I, I don't want to speak for the coaches. I don't really know other coaches' jobs here. I think we have a really dedicated group of coaches across the department. I wouldn't say that I did more work than anybody than other people in the mm -hmm. department that's not what i'm getting at i mm -hmm. think what i what i recognize is that my drive for perfection and my drive for success um in the context of what it takes to be a d3 school compete against d1 schools mm -hmm. in both recruiting and on this field of play and then make your team competitive with those d2 and d3 d1 schools yeah. And we did that. And and to do that, you actually have to go, I think you have to work maybe a little bit harder and definitely a little bit smarter than the average college ski coach. Yeah, that yeah. was at least my thing. Like what can where can I find the margins with the kids that I'm getting who aren't getting D1 recruited that much? Yeah. Uh, and then make them in four years competitive with D1 yeah. with the kids that they were getting recruited. Yeah. And I identified a few places. One of them was like ski speed and wax speed, um, like yeah. how fast we get the skis. Uh, the other thing was just just building them up. A lot of American kids don't have a base that a Norwegian kid has that gets a D1 scholarship to go to Utah or go to Colorado. Yeah. Those kids have been skiing. You know, our, our, our athletes at this college have always been a ski age of about a decade less than the kids they're competing against. Yeah. So, I, you know, the, the training was a part of it, the ski preparation. But, but the weekend... Every weekend, you got a Friday, a Saturday, Sunday race, or a Friday, Saturday race, and the amount of the processes that I put in place to make those margin margins up yep. were, were quite simply exhausting. I yeah. mean, you, you would you would prep from Thursday on yep. all day, yep. working on test skis to make skis fast, yep. and then you'd get there and it was like a race against the clock to get the kids the best ski they could, and, and there's multiple layers to the waxing, and it's it, you know we 
I'd tell the kids what to do, and then we would just start testing, and we'd be testing like all weekend long. Yeah. We we go to we we test until like eight thirty at night, get some dinner, go to bed, sleep, get up at five, and go back to the venue. And you do that week in and week out. And then you have to drive everybody across the UP in a snowstorm back after doing that for yeah, three days, and yeah. stressful. It's super stressful, and I, you know, I, and I don't know, I don't know what that means. I mean, I know what Maria's doing now as the head coach of the ski program, and she, it's tiring. I know she's tired, and because I was there, and uh, that's the that's the way. But that's that is the job, and and you you know, taking those jobs, that that's what your job is. Mm-hmm. And I came into that job in 20, 2006. Mm-hmm. With that mindset, and I never let the throttle off, yeah. and and I think that it was the only thing I could do. Like I, I couldn't keep doing it, yeah. And that was why I stepped back, and yeah. And and it was a good move. I mean, I think that it it opened up an opportunity for for me to coach a different sport. I actually get a little more time with my athletes because cross country running isn't so technical, so I can actually spend more time as kind of like we can talk. I mean, I, I remember our athletes on the ski team being scared to talk to us while we were prepping skis for the race because we'd snap at them mm-hmm. because we're like, we're, we're, we're under the gun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's not coaching. You yeah. Know? I mean, yeah. we're coaching, but yeah. we're not coaching. And yeah. so I would have to do, a, I'd have to do a post-mortem on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of yeah. what happened in the race Saturday, yeah. and, instead of doing it right on the spot. And yeah. cross country running, I mean, a lot of times I have to like give myself the time to talk to them, like just let them process how the race went, especially if it was a bad one. Right. Right. Um, and I, you know, I, that happened by, by, that was a de facto operation yeah. back in yeah. the ski coach. And, yeah. and, and I kind of miss that. I, I really feel bad for some of the athletes I had. Not, not, I mean, we didn't, we didn't abuse. It wasn't abuse. It wasn't yeah. bad. It wasn't yeah. abuse. But it was just like I wasn't there for them as much as I probably would have liked to have been, especially if I had, had another full-time assistant coach. that Maybe I could have farmed out some of that waxing stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. And more of a coach on those days. So I, I want to talk about waxing later. That's fascinating to me. <laughs> but before we get to that, you know, you talked about how some of the athletes, again, international athletes, have been on skis 10 years longer. Right. It's it like biathlon in particular. Yeah. Like it's one of these things, right? You see most Americans, mm-hmm. every four years they're exposed to it, right. right? It's the Olympics. You don't see it like football's on every weekend or college right. basketball or whatever else, which I think is a shame because it's mm-hmm. like the athleticism is amazing. I thought yeah. I was a great athlete as a football player and I watched these you know, yeah. skiers laying out, like, you don't talk about exhaustion, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. and, and you've been there, right? I mean, yeah. you were, you competed at, you were on the U.S. Olympic biathlete, biathlete yeah. team. You were exactly at an Olympia, and I should have, probably should have been, but, oh, never okay. made, never but, but I was on the national on team. On the national team, I yeah. World Cup and World Champions. Yeah, so, so how does one know if, because I don't see people skiing around with, with a gun on their back right. shooting targets. Right. Like, how do you, how do you know you're good at that? That's a good question. I, you know, I never really did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I was, you know, I made it to that level probably for two reasons. I think that the that the U.S. team just wasn't that good at the time. Uh-huh. I think we're a lot better now. Uh-huh. But I also think that, um, you know, I look back and looking what what I know now, I quit at twenty six, which is really young. Uh-huh. But um, you know, you 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 there are pockets to 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 make a long story short. There are pockets around the country where the sport has had a hold. And Giants Ridge up in Bawabic used to have a biathlon range before they built the golf course. And that's how I got into it because there was a biathlon range there. Uh. And I was from the iron range mm-hmm. and I was a, I was a good national level skier. And then I went over to biathlon. I was the top junior in the country in biathlon, but it, you know, there were very few people doing the sport. Yeah. I think that was probably part of it. So the talent, the talent pool wasn't huge. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think in, in a lot of ways, people who end up in biathlon, at least in the United States, end up, I almost end up there by chance. Like it's like circumstances. Yeah. yeah. And U.S. Biathlon is trying to change that, but um, even to this day, I mean, most of their world, you know, 
half of their World Cup team are people who took up the sport after they graduated college. Mm -hmm. They developed as a ski racer in college yeah. and, uh, and, and, and picked up the shooting. I mean, Paul Schomer graduated as Olympian last uh -huh. year at Beijing. Uh -huh. That was his thing. He, can't, he actually wasn't getting recruited, um, talked to me on the phone, was interested in biathlon even before he came here just because he thought it was cool. Yeah. He knew that I did biathlon. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't do much with biathlon while he was here. I took him to the range at Snowflake a couple times and saw that he was a very talented shooter, way more talented shooter than I was. Uh -huh. he, he was I could see the talent that he had there. Uh -huh. And and uh, he always had that kind of on the back of his, of his in the back of his mind that he was going to try to switch over to biathlon. I always had in the back of my mind that all I'm really doing is preparing him for an international co competition level. Yeah in biathlon and yeah. I know what those coaches are going to do with the training if he gets there and I have to have him ready for it in the four years that I have. Yeah. And, and, and it worked. It worked yeah. Out. Yeah. Talk to me about when you were training, when you were competing at that national level, talk to me about a, what a day looked like for you. Cause I can't, I, yeah. I, I've been around, I've been fortunate enough to be around some Olympic athletes. When I worked at Carroll university, we, yeah had about half of the U.S. long track speed skaters oh, yeah. that were students. So Casey Fitzrandolph yeah, 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 um, yeah. Was, a, was a teammate of mine, actually. Wow. He, he played football with me at Carroll. Cool. He was a kicker for a year. So cool. I know Casey, but... And that was, what, what years were those? Oh, like 97, yeah. 96, 97, 98. Yeah, like, I, I knew, oh no, actually earlier than that. I'm sorry. Yeah, like 93, 94, yeah. 95, like yeah. in that round. round yeah, I, but, I knew a lot of, like I knew Nathaniel Mills was a really good friend yeah, of mine because we yeah. served on the U.S. Olympic uh, athletes body together. He, yeah. was, he, was, he was from that era. So yeah, I yeah. Yeah. So, so. I, what I remember, there's a couple things I remember about Casey. Number one, like I, I remember him talking about like, getting up at like an ungodly early hour to get training in because he had school and all these right. other things. Remember that? And then the size of his legs, like, yeah. I mean, it was just incredible. Like, but, but so talk to me, like the, the dedication, the time, like, what did a day look like for you? What, what are that? What was that? I mean, a lot of it depend on where you were, but if you're in training camp, for example, mm -hmm. if, like I lived a lot of that time at the Olympic training center in Lake Placid and I wasn't in school. Mm -hmm. So we would probably get up, you know, 637 go for a run probably a half 30 15 to 30 minute jog mm -hmm. and that that was basically just to metabolize what we're going to eat for breakfast mm -hmm. it wasn't really a workout it was adding volume but so we do that go eat breakfast kind of digest then go to morning morning session morning session was usually actual time physically training was probably between one hour one hour and 30 to two hours and 30 minutes but the whole workout would take three to three and a half hours mm -hmm. with preparation zeroing the rifles that kind of stuff mm -hmm. So you do the morning workout. The morning workout's always the primary focus. So the way training, the way we do training is our, our the AM workout was what we were trying to develop. PM workout was a supplementary workout just to maintain energy system. Mm -hmm. So we do a, maybe a long workout or a hard workout in the morning and then come back, eat lunch, and take a nap. Mm -hmm. Sleep until the afternoon, get up, mm -hmm. drink a lot of coffee, and go to the second workout. So, yeah, I mean, we train, you know, a big week was 30 plus hours of actual physical training. Mm -hmm. So, like, actually, and that's not like to and from. That's like start your watch when you start working out, yeah. stop it when you're yeah. done. And yeah. it's like you know, 30 hours is a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I actually got overtrained early on because I just, I did, I, it was too big of a jump too soon for mm -hmm. me at 19 mm -hmm. years old. But mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you don't do that every week. Mm -hmm. You had recovery weeks where you might do seven hours yeah. as opposed to 30 so like you know you know one workout a day yeah you know maybe yeah. a day off and you do six workouts a week and that's a recovery workout yeah, yeah. but um I, you know the, the body can only do so much mm -hmm. and the role the role of the coach even at the national team level is to find the appropriate stress load to get better you know, the idea is to load stress on hit a new level of stress that you've never hit before and then recover off it if you just keep adding the stress you'll overtrain and break mm -hmm. down yeah so it's um 
So it is. It, it's a lot. But like you said, like you know, Casey Fitzgerald is an, it, largely an endurance sport, even though speed skating is much shorter work races than skiing or biathlon. It's still you're using the aerobic system. And any sport that requires a lot of, I mean, all sports require require work from the aerobic system mm-hmm. to 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 be able to continue to replicate the work. Mm-hmm. In endurance sports, sports lo- events longer than a burst of forty seconds yeah. of work. Yeah. You really need to build your aerobic system up, and that's what those sports do. And you have to do you have to do lots and lots of hours. There's no simple way to get around. You have to put in the time. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I really one of my early meetings here. I was able to sit and listen to you talk to the cross country team about mm-hmm. good uh, nutrition and mental health and all of those kinds of things. I would imagine you, over the course of your time in and around the sport at that level, have seen really. Um, really great athletic talents completely break down because they don't have good nutrition. They don't have, they, they overwork. They, right. the mental components of this is so taxing. Yeah. Um, talk a bit about what you tell your athletes. Cause I, I think everybody would benefit from hearing about, yeah. you know, the, all those little things outside of right. on skis that, that make or break a yeah. great athlete. Well, I mean, this is one of the things that I try to I try to work with my, especially my incoming freshmen, and, and it's counterintuitive. I think a lot of people don't realize. I mean, if you're going to run for more than an hour, you're going to largely be using your aerobic system. That's going to be the energy system you use. However, there are levels of the aerobic system that you want to be at, mm-hmm. and one of the things that is counterintuitive to almost everybody who is a competitive person is that. The aerobic system develops at its best at a very, very, very aerobic place. Not a aero- not a hard work aerobic place, but a very aerobic place, like a not hard work mm-hmm. aerobic place. Yeah. And adding adding duration to it. So um, there's a lot of there's a lot of scientific data that backs this up. And this is like for me as a development, I, I consider collegiate coaching is a developmental coaching in the scheme of elite sport and beginner sport. Mm-hmm. I would say high school's pre is, is before the actual developmental stage. It's pre-developmental. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of kids and coaches in high school think they are at the developmental, if not elite level, at high school. And a lot of that mentality actually doesn't work in the long haul into your 20s. Mm-hmm. You have two huge hormone hits as a boy or a girl. Girls are going to hit them probably around 11 to the 13. The first one, boys are going to hit the first one about 13 to 15. Mm-hmm. And then the girls will hit it again a couple of years, like when the boy, right when the boys are getting their first and they're getting their second, mm-hmm. and the guys are going to hit it about eighteen to twenty-one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When those are done, you don't get another one. Yeah, like it's like yeah. it's like being doped. Yeah, you get a huge <laughs> testosterone boost. Yeah, and and a lot of people don't realize, like in high school, you're going to get better even if it's terrible training. Yeah. Just the fact that you're training. Yeah, you're going to improve because of those two hits. Yeah, but after that. You got to be pretty good with what you do, or you could be really frustrated. And I think there are a lot of kids who get frustrated in college, yeah, because they get put into a situation where they have to keep up with the best people day in and day out, mm-hmm. and it's not the best thing for them. Mm-hmm. And that is where I think I have done a good job of finding those kids who weren't getting, who weren't getting, um, weren't maybe getting uh, recruited so much mm-hmm. for D one or D two scholarships. And then doing what they need to do mm-hmm. to get better. And, and I, that's where I would encourage people is to kind of slow down their long, slow down their long skis because that what the, the physiological adaptations that happen at that low level of intensity is going to do more for you in the long run. Make your quality workouts higher quality. Mm-hmm. Don't make your slow days 
a fast day mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> just because you think you need to be work 110% that day. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that to me is like, I'm 50. Yeah. And we were talking about this with my coaches when I was 15. Yeah. It's yeah. still a conversation. I think it's still a conversation, not because the science and the writing isn't out there. It's everywhere. Yeah. But culturally yeah. and competitively, people who haven't delved into that aspect of what training means for them. Yeah. And let's face it, most high school and even college coaches haven't. Yeah. You know, they're not yeah. reading the science. Yeah. They're not looking at yeah. the, the elite level stuff. And, I, and, I, and I'm very in tune to what's going on at the elite level. I'm right. talking to people in the World Cup all the time. Right. We're coaching athletes at right. the highest level. Right. And I'm applying it to the athlete that coach here. Yeah. In, in different ways. But I think that's the hardest thing is that there's that disconnect between endurance sport athletes who are competitive people have a hard time managing the days that they should be going easy. Yeah. And, and I think it's human nature. It's not yeah. like a, it's not like a cutting edge thing. Yeah. And I, what I really like too, about what she talked about is that there's this, this um, societal pressure about what you should eat, how you should sure. look, all of that. And I mean, I, I remember something, I'm going to get it wrong, you'll correct me, but saying something like when you were training or putting in those 30 hours a week, like mm-hmm. you'd s- sit at breakfast and eat like, yeah. you know, four waffles. Oh, and yeah. I mean, you, like yeah. you encourage your students, like don't shame people for what, like you need to, you eat. need to eat. And you need to eat carbohydrates. I think the hardest thing about like this, these diets, I mean, American, you know, we, we have a highest, we have the highest rate of eating disorder mm. in, in, in society than we've ever had right now. And in, in our sports, skiing and particularly distance runners where you have a power to weight ratio thing. It's a very, it's a, it's a scary place to coach because of that, that proposition that, yeah. um, that you starve yourself and you see it in an issue yeah, yeah. performance increase and it's real, but it's very, very short lived. Yeah. It might be a year long, maybe two years if you can stretch it out if you have disordered eating and then things are, then the wheels come off. Yeah. And when they come off, they come off for real. Yeah. I don't want that for any kid that I coach. And um, you know, I'm not so naive to think that it's not happening on my team because even though I talk about it and even though we hit them as freshmen and sophomore, every year we have that talk. Yeah. Um, there are still other things that other mental health issues that figure into our relationships with food. Yeah. And one of the things that I have decided um, since about six or seven years ago is like, if I'm going to keep doing coaching in endurance sport, um, I want to address this head on and I want to make sure that my, my athletes know they have support, know where to go to get it and encourage them to get it. Cause you're never going to, you're never going to get somebody who's dealing with that to really admit it right up front. Mm-hmm. It might take a year. Mm-hmm. It might take two years. It might take more than that. Yeah. But if we're not giving them the pathways, if we're not presenting them the pathways to help themselves, then we're not doing anything. Then what's the point of even being here coaching? If you're hurting people's health, if you're ruining their health, which these sports unfortunately do for some people. And I've seen it happen time and again. These sports can be great. That's why I love it. That's why I coach. But there are also huge pitfalls. And they are... There are pitfalls that I think we as a society simply need to talk more about. And I think we're doing that. I think that there there are movements to help not only endurance athletes, but people in general with, with disordered eating and, mm-hmm. and the mental, the mental aspects, the mental health aspects of our relationships with food. And, and it goes beyond sport. It goes, I mean, if you look at uh, social media and it's with, with filters, mm-hmm. and it's not making things any easier for our kids. No, not <laughs> at all. I, I said it then. And I, you know, I'd say it now I, you know, I've been around a lot of coaches and heard a lot of preseason talks about development and being ready and things. And, and that, that, that conversation you had with your team was it was really one of the most impressive okay. talks I've ever heard. Right. I mean, really just hitting on things like you say, maybe they walk away and think, yeah, that's not me, but it puts the bug in their ear sure. for, you know, 
three months yeah. later when they're struggling with something. And, right? and I've heard from, I mean, I've heard from numerous athletes that even maybe left the program though, yeah. that that conversation helped them yeah. at that point. Yeah, that's great. And that to me is like, that's probably, that's as good as getting an All-American yeah. award. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, very true. Probably more important. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking about maintaining the athletes. I want to go back to this whole thing and people who know skiing are going to laugh at me with this. But like, for me, like I, I, again, I watch it every four years at the Olympics and I'm amazed by it, but, but outside of that, like, I don't know, but waxing, like mm -hmm. waxing is like one of the most important, like we spend a lot of money on wax here too, with our <laughs> skis. Like, I, like I, talk to me about that, that need to get that right with that ski and the tinkering right. that goes on with that. So some things have changed a lot, even since I left, I've been gone six years from that position and in that time. And I think it's a really good thing. So these waxes that, so somewhere around like in the late 80s, a wax companies started realizing that chlorofluorocarbons were, you know, they, they repel water. Yeah. And chlorofluorocarbons ended up being very fast in wet conditions, like when there's high moisture, which happened to also be the slowest conditions because the ski can't manage the water under yeah. it and yeah. it starts yeah. to hydroplane and get slow. Oh, interesting. So those, that, that, that invention of flying, <laughs> excuse me, fluorocarbons to ski waxes. Um, just proliferated from 19, probably 1988 yeah. to today, where we're putting multiple layers of stuff. It really, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the environment. I mean, the if you look at where fluorocarbons exist, I mean, ski, ski racing is not the problem. Yeah, right, right. But we're still using these chemicals that are not good for us. Yeah. Um, they're not good for the environment. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know what effect waxing has had on me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have, you know, I can't say my Parkinson came about from it, but it could could be a pathogen. Right. We don't know. Right. So I'm all for I'm all for getting rid of them. But, yeah. Um. And and there and the waxing industry is in the process of getting rid of those of, of removing fluorocarbons. But it's it's kind of like it's really tough because they're super effective. And they're used they're used for and again out of complete ignorance, right? Like you say, repelling water. Yeah. Is it for like I've heard it's for like track like is it traction stuff no. or is it all for just speed and that, repelling water? No, that's for that's for the speed of the ski. There okay. are there are grip waxes that you put under the foot for classic skiing only. So okay. skiing events it's all about getting the skis fast. Yeah. And then you need to wax the tips and tails for a classic race. And then get a grip wax in the middle. That those aren't, aren't as dangerous as waxes. Yeah. Those are those are those are mostly plastics. Yeah. Types of plastics. Yeah. And um, you apply those to grab the grip, but then you have to like also get really good at knowing the athlete, how those skis fit that athlete, and the application of that kick wax, uh. so that it both kicks and glides fast. Uh. So it's one thing you can. It's easy to get somebody enough kick, uh -huh. but will the skis be fast enough to glide to win the race? Yeah. yeah. So you end up with all these. I mean, it's it's. it's it's really, so I'll just tell you, know, what I did was a very different thing than maybe anybody ever did, but we just focused on carrying a lot of waxes in small volumes. So I'd get as many wax, because our kids didn't have a lot of ski choices. They're, yeah. they're college kids. Yeah, yeah. World Cup athletes can choose, they spend most of their time choosing the right ski, because that's the biggest factor. So they'll choose from about 15 pairs of skis on a huh. race day and whittle it down to the best ski. Yeah. And the wax guys put what they think of the wax, you know, they've been testing wax too. Yeah, they, yeah. they have huge, so we had two coaches. Yeah. And didn't have a lot of ski choices. So I would just, I had, I, I would test probably close to 60 to 80 different waxes in a weekend. Just glide waxes. That's yeah. not kick wax. So we'd yeah. work on glide. So to do that, you have to like wax a bunch of skis. You have to test very quickly. We had a very rapid style testing that, um, quite frankly, a lot of people don't do. And I don't, you know, but it worked for us. Yeah. Like, 
Yeah. My my assistant coach Josh Atesh and I had really good. We call we have good feelers. Yeah. And that was one of the actually one of the things that I realized that my Parkinson's was developing is that I lost my feeling. I lost my feelers. I was feeling my right foot wasn't working. Wow. So, um, but we had a really confident system, but it was really exhausting. So we would basically have a, a, a double blind, single blind test in a lot of ways, just uh-huh. blind test and try to get very quickly to a very fast wax. Yeah. And then we we would test for a structure, but we would test probably three different layers. We would test a base layer and maybe an under layer. We test for an under layer. Uh-huh. We test for a base layer. We test for a fluorocarbon layer. And then we test for a top coat layer. And every one of those would probably have 20 plus options we started with and we'd whittle it down to the fastest. So when we put the fastest, so when we test that many skis, we'd have a really fast base layer or decide not to put an under layer. Yeah. Depending on whether it was fast or not. So yeah. then we'd go to the base layer and we'd have the fastest base layer of 20 some wax that we tried. Yeah. Then we'd have the floral layer of 20 some wax that we tested in that layer. And then we'd have another, then we'd try to like top coat it. And then when you put those four, if you get, if you're up against other teams that, and they're in a mass start race, and they've got, and you're better than them on 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 two of those four layers. Mm-hmm. It's noticeable. Hmm. It may not lose the race, but it's noticeable. Like yeah. You can get out there, and when you're looking at each other gliding down a hill, if you've got the best four layers, and you and, and three of those four layers are better than everybody else's, people see it. Yeah. And and our and and we had a really good tracker. I mean, we screwed up our skis sometimes too. But it just gives you an idea of the puzzle yeah. that we would have to that we would try to unlock, and, yeah. and there was a cost to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, we uh, our our uh, our athletes pretty much never went into a race thinking our skis are going to suck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's you know the stuff that you don't know, right? Yeah. When you're not when you're not connected, yeah. all those hidden things yeah. that you don't know. It's just fascinating. But that's all changing now too, and I think it's changing for the better. Like I said, I, I'm not. I like that system because it gave us a competitive edge. To, to make up that gap, yeah, those D two schools, yeah, with scholarship money. I mean, you know, racing against yep. kids who went to the World Junior Championships from Germany, yep. from a kid who skied the Wisconsin State meet, and that's the highest level he's been at. Yeah, it's like yeah. trying to beat those athletes. Yeah. so you had to find those, you had to find those, those, those avenues. And luckily, I think that that system of waxing is is going the way of the dinosaur, and sure. it's actually a good thing. Yeah. I want to shift to your announcing now. So mm-hmm. you've you've been around from what I could the research that I've done about six Olympic games now yeah, in yeah. a variety of different forms. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've seen a lot, and I'm, I'm interested. Like when you watch commentating on TV, it seems so effortless. Like how do they know all this stuff? I t- talk to me about the preparation you do going into a race. Yeah. Um, what things, how do you prepare yourself? What, what help are you getting during it? And then some of it's just the raw emotion. I mean, you're, 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 you're credited with one of the most, probably one of the most noticed calls in all of racing in, in 2018, right? Yeah. With Diggins and her in, in the gold medal there, but how, what, what, what goes into preparation for announcing at well, that level? I mean, I think it's, it depends on what you're doing. I mean, I think if you're like, if you're Chris Collinsworth in the booth for NFL, you've got probably Somebody in your ear, mm-hmm. and you got a stats crew feeding you stuff probably on an iPad or something similar to it, where mm-hmm. you have a system. I've never done NFL football, but mm-hmm. they have, you know, they have a huge budget. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Sunday Night Football is the biggest show in American television, not just sports, but it's the number one oh, show. Oh, wow. Was, for, I remember they have it up on the wall at NBC Sports, and you walk in, there's a big mural like a, uh-huh. of Sunday Night Football. It's the number one show eight years running in American TV. I mean, so when you think about that, like yeah. that's bigger than any TV show you like. Yeah. That's going to come, what's going to come with it is a huge budget. Yeah. Yeah. So those guys have 
everything they need at their fingertips. You don't really, I mean, they prep, they prep all week. Mm -hmm. And then they have a team that's prepped. So, mm -hmm. but, but the great thing for Collinsworth is he can actually sit there and analyze what's going on. And this, and the, and the stats people can feed him stuff that will, that will give him right. hard data. To, right. To back up what he's saying. Now, right. For me, it's a smaller, a little smaller second, operation. Second biggest. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Small operation. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is that the older I get, the more I have to prep. Um, when I was closer to, when I was closer to my competitive years, which I quit in '98, so like in the early 2000s, I still knew a lot of the athletes that were competing personally. Um, so I could reach out to them. I mean, you can reach out to the U.S. coaches now and some of the athletes, but for the most part, I'm further removed from the sport. So I actually, and and I think my I think my mind is, it's not as sharp as it was. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think anybody notices that, but I noticed that, like, you know, I wouldn't need to prep in 2005. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I prepped, but mm -hmm. I didn't have a, I didn't have a huge stat sheet mm -hmm. that I prepped. Mm -hmm. um, the biathlon, the biathlon, International Biathlon Union has an amazing website that has, that is really good for commentators. So if I have to not prep, if I have no time to prep, I can still do a really good show. Cross country, their website's not so good. Mm -hmm takes three probably three hours per race to actually get the notes that i feel will be comfortable and i use about 10 percent of it sure but the process of doing all that lodges in your head a little bit yeah so you get more familiar with that so when you hand write something down on a sheet of paper it's almost an advantage to do that even though it's really time consuming yeah biathlon i like better because I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm i'm nervous if i haven't prepped well but cross country ski races actually get me you know writing stuff down yeah. something about writing something down it's more likely to, to catch in your head yeah but one of the things that that nbc is really stickler about is being accurate whether it's olympic definitely the olympics yeah you can't say something uh, and get away with it if it's not true because somebody is researching what you just said like you say something yeah the, 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 there's a at the Olympics, not not everyday TV. Yeah, that's the difference. But at the yeah. Olympics, there's people. Re, you know, I've had to come back on after commercial and correct myself huh. multiple times. Yeah, even when I thought I was right. Yeah, but I had the stat wrong, and, and yeah. they missed it. So, and that is a luxury that um, a lot of commentators doing sports don't have. Uh -huh. So one of the things that drives me nuts is when I know a commentator from another country <laughs> says something, yeah. and I know it's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. They can get away with it because nobody's fact checking. Yeah, right, so, right. So, I, so, but you know, the biggest thing with working with NBC is they want accuracy. They want you to be on top, and and I think it's really good. I mean, nobody, nobody wants a bunch of BS, mm -hmm. in their, in their, in their, regardless of if it's the Olympics or not. Mm -hmm. um, one one thing that I I like to do is I like to get their age, mm -hmm. top result, mm -hmm. top championship result, mm -hmm. and then something that's happened that season. Mm -hmm. And that that takes a lot of time. If there's 90, 90 people in the race. Think about how long it takes to put that on a sheet of paper. Yeah, right. So that's a, right. that's a, that's a few hours. Yeah. Um, and I like to do that even for biathlon. The, the other thing is biathlon is how they're shooting right now, what the yeah. shooting stats are for that year. Yeah. And you know you might only use it once or twice that stuff, but you you need to have it. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. you you lose your train of thought. And if yeah. you know where it is, I have I have I use multiple different colors of highlighters, yeah. and I have my start list, and I highlight color, different colors mean different things. Yeah. So I can be talking and I can glance mid-sentence of something that I want to support and I know where to find it. Yeah. And that's my system. Yeah. Like, and, I, and I know, you know, I have the workup standings and I have the highlights of wins, second yeah. places, third places, podium finishes, top yeah. tens. Yeah. yeah. And having all that stuff is just, it, I mean, I don't think those are the most important details. Uh, if you never hit those details, you can still do a good call. Yeah. 
but it's the kind of detail that that gives the, uh, the opportunity for the viewer to put into context what what they're witnessing. Right. If you really think about what matters, um, I mean, I get a lot of love for my my energy. Yeah. When, when and I think that, that that's a skill and that's yep. also a talent. Yep. Like yep. figuring out how to turn what you're watching into emotional highs and low points. Right. And then placing a context to what why that's important. Right. And and it's not and if it's phony, people will know it. Yeah. Like you've got to be genuine. Yeah. You've got to genuinely be excited about what you're calling. Yeah. And then you have to be accurate on the delivery. Yeah. And when you do you do those things, you end up with a really good show. Yeah. And for me, I think one of the problems that beginning or new commentators have is we're also self-conscious as people about what our what our, our role is in anything we do that yeah. it's easy to make it about you yeah it's easy to make it what should i say next yeah what's my role i don't want to look stupid so i gotta i gotta fill the space with something yeah and that's when you start talking about stuff that don't, doesn't matter yeah you say something wrong yeah say something offensive <laughs> uh-huh. i think the biggest thing is like i, I think my biggest effort every time I sit in the booth is I'm there for the viewer. Yeah. I'm not there for my buddies at the bar. I'm not there for to commentate to my friends. Yeah. I'm not there to be nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm there to see what I say. And, and I, it's not that I'm 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 mean. Yeah. I'm not ever going to say anything that is but if somebody screws something up or they should have done something better and, and I know that about them. Yeah. I'm going to say yeah. it because everybody's thinking it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that you have to be a genuineness. You have yeah. to be honest. I yeah. mean, even if it's your friend, yeah. even if it's the kid you coach, yeah. you have to be honest about what you're seeing. And that, and that has to be like a free, it's good, a bit of free form consciousness when you're in the booth. Yeah. And you don't do that well if you're not prepared. Right. Where has been your favorite place that you've traveled in all of your travels for commentating or, 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 uh, participate or, uh, competing? Is there been some favorites? I mean, it's really hard because um, there's so many, like in Biathlon, there's, I just saw a post on tw- Twitter today, like somebody, somebody's parents were at the uh, IBU European Championships, not in the World Cup, and it was in Switzerland. It's beautiful. And I said, somehow the IBU really knows where to put beautiful, <laughs> pick beautiful venues. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was in Switzerland. So there's a lot of great places, I think. But right now... Um, the places I've been, I, I really like Ruppolding, Germany, which is south of, uh, it's in the, in the Bavarian Alps. Huh. Um, it's a big biathlon town. Was, huh. Their World Cup was two weekends ago, and it's huh. a great, I, w- I got to go back there last year, as luck would have it, to comment, commentate from that venue. Yeah. And then uh, the next weekend is in Antols, Italy, which is high in, a, in the Italian Alps. Not in the Dolomites, it's right near the Dolomites, huh. but it's in the Alps. It's up, high up in the valley, and it's just gorgeous. Hmm. Those are probably my two favorite places, but... I, I, one place I would like to go is they have a World Cup now. This guy Martin Fercad was one of the best biathletes in history. He was he's got some of the most wins, and he was a, a spectacularly talented biathlete. And he's retired now. Yeah, France has always been good a, a good biathlon nation, but they're he took it to a new level. Yeah, and there's huge level biathlon in the country of France right mm-hmm. now, which wasn't the case in the '90s when I was competing. Mm-hmm. They were good, but mm-hmm. nobody came. And we had some big events in 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 the place where they held a World Cup now in France, and there were no spectators. Yeah. Now they go up in this high mountain valley in France in end of December before Christmas, and it's this, you know, thirty thousand people with a big screen in a field, you know, it's perfect range, and it's in there. It's huge granite walls, these these amazing peaks in the in the Alps, and cool thirty thousand people's voices echoing off those walls. I have not been to that event, and yeah. I, I still that's kind of on my bucket list. Like I gotta go to yeah. Le Grand Bernard yeah. World Cup yeah. because it's so spectacular. So. Yeah. So yeah, and I I mean Oslo is always great. Yeah. 
Um, so Oslo, the Holman Colon venue, which is, it's kind of like Yankee Stadium for yeah. any ski event. Okay. And, and I got to compete there once. It was really crappy weather. I had the worst race of my life in, ever in a World Cup. Uh, I think I was second to last and I missed like most of my shots. And, uh, but it was still a thrill to be there. Yeah. 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 Very cool. If there was a, you know, you compete at biathlon at a high level and skiing, what Olympic sport or, or sport overall would you say, like, if you weren't, if you weren't competing at that high level running or skiing, what would you like to do? I think actually, I don't know what I'd like to do, but I actually talked to Nathaniel Mills about this. Uh-huh. Like, um, so I have a pretty big trunk. Like I have, I have a big caboose and really big quads. <laughs> yeah. And I should have probably been a speed skater. Yeah. I, I look at where my max VO2 is uh-huh. and it's, it's too low for the sport that I did. Uh-huh. And I, I, you know, I could go into, I just saw him in Lake Placid last week. Eric Flame was a silver medalist in the yeah. game, speed skating. Yeah. We, we, we overlapped our careers and we knew each other. Uh-huh. And he's a little smaller than me, but I could just about leg press what he could leg press. Okay. And that's more than, more power than you need to be a Nordic skier. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I remember he noticed that. He goes, you're going to jump, like he, he leg pressed on, on the squat bench and I, at the Olympic Training Center. And I jumped in and didn't change a thing and did the same thing. He goes, whoa. You're gonna do that, you know. <laughs> so I think, and then and, and Nathaniel Mills was had a high, so he had a huge VO2. He was like in the 80s, mm-hmm. which is what I needed. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't keep the weight on his legs and, and trunk. Mm-hmm. And and you know he grew up in West Dallas, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. speed the speed skating was good there. And yeah, he's like, yeah. we probably should have flipped, flipped, flipped sports. <laughs> With that being said, I don't know if I would have loved to go around in circles. Yeah, I don't know if I loved yeah, enough to do it. Yeah. So, but that's probably. If I look at like my physiological traits and where I have power, yeah, I was too powerful in the lower body for skiing, uh-huh. um, and not high enough max VO two. So, yeah, so I, I, I plenty seventy three is plenty high. Yeah, for a fifteen hundred to five thousand meter speed skater. Yeah, and but yeah. you know I just never that that wasn't where that wasn't yeah, where the, fate yeah. took me. Yeah, so. that's right. That's so mm-hmm. great. Well, we've been uh, pep- been peppering you with questions here for about 45 minutes. It's been a quick hour so far, but uh, what questions do you have for me? Anything as we do always on the podcast here? I, you know, I just, I, I'm kind of interested into like where you came from. Yeah. From here and, and what, you know, how do you, what made you, what, what, why do you want me on the podcast? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think, you know, my, my journey here, you know, again is, you know, I grew up single parent family. Yeah. Um, First gen college student, you know, went to school, was lucky enough to be able to to work in the admission office. I worked in the athletic department. I was actually a manager for a women's basketball team, but mm-hmm. then my wife, now wife, um, worked in the admission office. Kind of got me invited to do some panels, and I was hooked. Right, right. so was offered a job, and then you know thought I'd do it for a year or two and get yeah. a real job, and end up you know now almost thirty years later, you know doing <laughs> yeah. doing my real job, right? Yeah. But you know coming here, you know unique opportunity with sure. enrollment and student affairs and, you know, just the, the ability to be in and around students and have an impact in their lives. So much like coaching. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. we, we just have this tremendous opportunity to have an impact on the trajectory of people's lives. So it's, yeah. it's incredible, right? Um, you know, the podcast and you specifically on the podcast, you know, I, I, my, my, my desire here, um, you know, I wasn't under some false pretense that this would be like the number one podcast in the country. <laughs> right. Yeah. But for me, I think, for a place like Scholastica, whoever wants to listen in mm-hmm. I, within our community, we can learn so much about each sure. other just by taking the time. Yeah. Like some have said too, like, you know, you're so busy, you know, yeah. taking the time to do this. Well, yeah. I mean, if I don't take the time to do this, right, right. I don't get to take the time to know people and find out about their stories. Like it's so cool just to hear people's stories. And, yeah. 
Um, you know, there's people that I've met early on that I've just been able to make connections with where, you know, it's been whether meeting with your team or yeah. with our interactions, which is my intersection with athletics. Um, it's like, yeah, that's somebody I'd, I'd sit and listen to eventually it'd be great if I could interview everybody that works. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. may get to that point, but, um, it's just a fun way to, to get mm-hmm. to, to meet people. I mean, I'm sure you do it too, as a commentator or whatever, yeah. you get to meet these just tremendous personalities from all over the place. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's I'm interviewing two of them this afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's just a beautiful thing to be able to do that. So, yeah. Okay, no, so you, you, you've taken a job in Duluth. Yeah. What, what do you like most about Duluth and what yeah. do you like, what's your favorite thing about being here at the college? Yeah. So, you know, we're still, our family's in a little bit of a transition still, you know, from the St. Cloud area. But the one thing my wife and I came up um, about two years ago for our 25th wedding anniversary, spent some time on the North Shore. Um, and, you know, we came over that hill on 35 yeah. and saw the lake. And, you know, we grew up, my wife and I both in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, so right along Lake Michigan. Right. You can't walk, you know, 15 feet in Minnesota and not fall on a lake, right? right but right. there's something about a great lake, right. um, the beauty of it, the the immenseness of it. Right. There's just something, I don't know, mythical, I think, yeah, about yeah. the water and the lake. So. I think that notion of it being in the upper Midwest, I mean, all of our family is located in kind of Southwest Wisconsin. So the West Dallas, Milwaukee, right, right, Waukesha right. area. Um, so being close to them, but yeah. um, you know, I've, I've looked at and entertained, you know, jobs at different areas, but the, you know, there's something about a small, <laughs> a small school. I was, yeah. I'm a product of one yeah. small towns thing. So all of that kind of comes together. We haven't really explored Duluth much overall because I'm waiting for my wife to get up here. Right. But what we've seen when they've been up again, yeah. it's just it's big enough to feel like you're in a big place, right. but small enough to where yeah. you know you can you can know people and have your favorites. Yeah, it's just yeah. a perfect size. Yeah. That's so, how I feel about. It. I mean, I just yeah. I love being here. I mean, it's like you know being at the school. I think the school is a really great place to work. Yeah. I think that it's got it's it's got. Still, still after hundreds of years, it still has so much potential still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I think that uh, I think that that mission is, is kind of keeps me keeps me engaged here. Yeah. And the and the building we sit in having this conversation yeah. in Tower Hall is, you yeah. know, just so iconic. I mean, it's like you're working in a castle. Yeah. I mean, it really is kind of. And, cool. and we're looking at the lake. Yeah. The and we look at the lake through the window. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Cool. it's the beauty about that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Good. Well, thanks for being yeah. here. This is wonderful. And I appreciate you taking the time and your yeah. busy schedule. You were just out in Lake. Uh, Lake Placid. Lake Placid last weekend, the university games, and we had a, we had an athlete um, perform really yeah. well there too. And Emma, I'm having lunch with her next week to Good. hear about her experience. Cool. But awesome. yeah, thirteenth in the in, in the, the biathlon. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. She she came in a little bit sick and didn't race the first race. And I think the first race that set up the pursuit, she was probably a little flat and been racing. And then then but she shot great. Yeah, and then skied better that second day. Yeah. yeah, I think I think she should be proud of what she did. But yeah. it was a really fun event. I mean, it's like. You know, NBC folded the Olympic Channel, so I don't really have a lot of work anymore yeah. for TV, and that's going to have me coaching more more now as well. Yeah, but yeah. Um, but it was like one thing where I could do this winter, where yeah, it was right after New Year's, I, I took the job, and it was really fun. Yeah, people can find you on Twitter. I mean, you you mm-hmm. what these events? You you post a lot about those events. They can find yeah. where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, what is my Twitter handle? I mean, I think it's at Chad Salmo. Yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. So look look up that, and yeah. it's fun to watch and yeah. and see and do some research on the back end with athletes you don't really know about yeah. that are just tremendous. So, yeah. well, thanks for being here. Yeah, yeah great pleasure. to have you. That All was right. an hour from Teller Podcast, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening in.